0: And I love the time of Advent. I love this season. I love the preparation of our hearts. I I, I like Christmas trees and lights and, I don't know, bunny rabbits and I don't know what. But I I just love this time of year. And uh, this has been an unusual Advent series because of the difficulty of the stories when I'm I started looking at doing the genealogy of Matthew, which um, we've been looking at over the past several several weeks. In the genealogy are listed uh, four specific women, and then it ends with Mary, who we'll see next week. And as you look back at their lives and their stories, they're so difficult. And you look at them and say, well, this doesn't seem like a really good Advent series, but in fact, it's the perfect Advent series to me. Because it talks about how God takes the ashes of our lives. And many of us will look at our lives and will say our lives are, you know, they're okay. I wouldn't call it ashes. And I would contend to you, no, they're, they're ashes. Because that's what sin has done to all of our lives. It's ruined us. And some of us are just more aware of our ruination than others. Uh, We're all shattered apart from Christ, and because Jesus comes, he takes the ashes of our lives and turns them into something glorious. And so over the past weeks, we looked at this genealogy of Jesus, and it's fascinating again today to start with the truth that, or the fact that Matthew starts with Jesus as the son of David, because we're going to look at David again, and the... The sin of David's life. And yet, here's David. I'm not dwelling on the male figures of this genealogy. That'd be a whole different series. I'm I'm looking at the women of the genealogy. But it starts with the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David. And we've looked at some of the various women in this, all the women up to this point. First, we looked at Tamar and her relationship really with her father-in-law, Judah, who leads to a birth of twins. And we see that through Tamar, that God works in really the worst circumstances, the horrible circumstances that she found herself in to accomplish his purpose and to transform our characters. Then we looked at Rahab, uh, who's most of the time, this is really the only passage in the Bible where she's not known as Rahab the prostitute or Rahab the harlot. And we see that through her, God uses unlikely people to do his work. If you went into all of um, the city of Jericho and said, who am I going to choose to do the work of the Lord? You probably would not have started at the prostitute's house. And yet that's where God chose to work through Rahab. And her current obedience, her, her obedience to God at the moment was more important to the future and purposes and destiny that God had for both his people than her past failures were. And, and I, I, this, to me, is one of the crucial aspects of this whole series. Don't be frozen by your past failures. Everyone in here has a failure story. And some of our failures are pretty magnificent, so to speak. They're pretty huge. But don't be frozen by your past failures. God can redeem anything and will, if you'll allow him. Through faith, and your faith working itself out in action, you can accomplish the destiny for which you were created and that God has for this day and age. We saw that in the story of uh, of Rahab. Last week, we talked about, really, um, Rahab's son, Boaz, married a woman named Ruth. And through Ruth, we see that God works through relationships. The Naomi-Ruth relationship and other... Don't don't minimize relationships. God is at work through relationships. Christianity is not a Lone Ranger religion. It's not a Lone Ranger faith. It's, It's a family of faith. You are called to the body of Christ. You are called to the church. God is not looking for just a person after his name, as we've said many times, but a people after his name. God is at work through relationships. Sometimes God works through the difficult and the ordinary, the mundane of life. Sometimes we go looking for the huge, spectacular, when God is right at work, right in front of us, in the ordinary, the stuff we go through every day. And God can work through hurting and powerless people to accomplish his purposes. We see this over and over in the word of God. Sorry, this is the teacher in me coming out. Just I have to review to get us all going on the same page. But today, we're going to move forward. And we're going to look in Matthew 1, 5 and 6. It says, Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Obed, the father of Jesse. And Jesse, the father of King David. David, who was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. We see three of the key women listed in just these two verses. It's just a spectacular to me genealogy. Going from Rahab, whose son is Boaz, who then marries Ruth, whose grandson, great-grandson is David, who then gives birth to a child named Solomon, the two greatest kings in the Old Testament in the nation of Israel, David and then Solomon. But it ends with this phrase, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Today, I want to focus on the story of Bathsheba. Usually when we get to the story of David and Bathsheba, most of the time we talk about David. But today I want to focus on Uriah's wife, Solomon's mother, Bathsheba. Here's my question. What do you think of when you think of the name Bathsheba? When your first thought, and I mentioned Bathsheba, what did you think of? And I would like to, to contend to you that many of you today, your first thought was, uh, she's, she's a naked bather. <laughs> she's uh, on the roof. she swears she shouldn't have been. She's maybe seduced David. She seized power. She worked her way in. And I would contend to you that that is the way art, literature, movies have portrayed Bathsheba. So if you even were to say someone is a Bathsheba, you're not saying something generally nice about them. You're saying something about, yeah, she's a floozy kind of thing. And that is anything but what the Bible says. I'd like for us to look at the scripture today and look at it from a different angle. Some of you are like, floozy, I've never even heard that word before. It's a, nice, it's a nicer way of saying other things. <laughs> David, when we come to 2 Samuel chapter 11, is at his promise and peak as king. David the boy who was anointed king when he was a young teenager who went and slew Goliath, who becomes a mighty warrior, who is promised the kingship, who, who, who flees from Saul for years and years. And finally, after Saul's death, takes the kingdom, unites it, uh, becomes really the greatest king in, the, in, in, in name because of the way he brings the nation together, is at his peak. And God's promise to him was, through you, David, the Messiah is going to be born. I mean, it's already been given to him chapters before we come to this place. He as at the peak of his power and at this moment of wealth, he probably has at least, the, when we get to 2 Samuel 11, he probably has at least seven wives that we know about. He's probably around the age of 50 to 55 years of age. He's been king for a while. He settled into his life as king. He's probably writing psalms and still uh, worshiping God. But in 2 Samuel 11, when we come to there, it says this. In the spring at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Reba, But David remained in Jerusalem. This is an unusual passage, but it speaks of David not being where David was supposed to be. I mean, the whole beginning of the story is this. David is now king. David's at the peak of his power. It's at the time kings go out to war. and to, To me, it's kind of a funny, it's almost a mythological type of phrase. But what it means is David should have been out doing battle with his people. He should have been leading the forces as a a, a king. It's not more like, oh, every spring, well, let's go find somebody else to kill. Uh, Let's go out to war. But there was some things that needed to be cleaned up in the kingdom. There was a a time for cities to be conquered and the nation to be brought together. When David conquered, uh, became king of Israel, Israel was still scattered with different pagan towns, and he had to seize Jerusalem even himself, to take it as what was going to be the capital. So David was a warrior. He was a a king warrior. He wanted to build a temple, but God said, no, you got too much blood on your hands. Instead, you just unite the kingdom. I'll give the temple building to your son. David stays in Jerusalem. I know, again, he's probably 50 to 55. You know, I find as I get older... Uh, My wife and I kid about this all the time. She's like, "Uh, do you want to go out? And I'm like, no, I'm good. I like like where I am. I like this chair. I like this book. You don't want to go out? No, everything's good right here. (laughs) David at 50 to 55, he's probably saying, "Eh, I've done this battle thing before. I think I'll let the young bucks go handle it. And I'll stay back. And here, because David doesn't do what he's supposed to do, is where he falls into what's known as his greatest sin. As a matter of fact, the Bible will say David did all things right in the eyes of the Lord except for his sin with Bathsheba. This exception of David's life is coming up. And I want to read the passage to you, and then I want to take it apart just a little bit so that we get maybe a different perspective on Bathsheba's life. One evening, David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful, and David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, Isn't this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam and the wife of Uriah the Hittite? Then David sent messengers to get her. She came to him, and he slept with her. She had purified herself from her uncleanness. Then she went back home. The woman conceived and sent word to David, saying, "I am pregnant." At this point, Jerusalem is probably only the city of David Jerusalem. If you go to Jerusalem today, which we did with Robin Shannon, we actually toured what's called the city of David, right outside the corner of the old city, the walls. It's not even in Jerusalem proper. The old old city of Jerusalem, this is the older city, uh, right outside the walls, the city of David. It probably only makes up 10 to 11 acres, the whole city of Jerusalem. It's not big like we think of the city of Jerusalem now when David first had it. 10 of 11 acres, 10 to 12 acres, is probably about two to three times the size of our entire church property. I think we're on four acres right here if you do all the parking lots. So just double or maybe triple it, and that's what you've got for the whole thing. So, David from his roof, he can pretty well see most everything. If you go up on the roof of our church, you can see pretty good uh, around our area. I'm not suggesting that, by the way, for uh, some of you adventuresome ones. But David's on his rooftop, and he looks over and he. Sees a woman bathing. Now, I want you to notice some things about this. Um, this, There is no mention in this passage where Bathsheba was. David's on his roof. We don't know where she is. She could have been on her roof. She could have been in her house. She could have been in her courtyard. We don't know where she was. Also notice that it mentions nothing about her being unclothed. It mentions nothing about her being naked on her rooftop. I think sometimes when we think of this story, we think of, yeah, Bathsheba, she was just prancing around naked on the roof, maybe in the hot tub, maybe having a bubble bath, something. But there's nothing of this in this story. In addition, the type of bathing she was doing was a ceremonial bathing. It was a ritual bathing for, um, I'm trying to say this delicately, from the law, for when a, a woman had finished her menstrual cycle, she had to do, go through a purification bath, so to speak. And in most cases, this purification bath was not unclothed, especially if it was in public during this time. That's why in the later phrase, where it says down near the bottom, she had purified herself from her uncleanness. That's what it's talking about. It's saying, look, Bathsheba, she, she had just finished her period, she had this bath. Then she's going to go to David, and when she sees him, it's clear nobody else could have been the father of this baby, kind of thing. You with me? We don't. This is not biology class, but I think you understand what I'm saying. So um, she's not naked. She's not. She's she's just following the law. She's not doing anything that would entice, as far as the scripture says here, David. Here's here's what's really important. I, I think that many times Bathsheba gets a bad name because we so mythologize David. We so, man after God's own heart, great king, great leader. He was the king of the nation. He was the spiritual leader of the country. He had done incredible things, but the Bible is so brutally honest in this description of David that I don't think we should necessarily give him the break that many of us want to give him. And, and here's the point, really, about David. We'll come back to it, but the point about David is his sin is so off the chart that it's going to affect the rest of his life, really, really. And I also want to say this, many times, because we live in a more patriarchal society, Judaism at this time was totally patriarchal, totally male-dominated, totally male. Everything is seen through the male perspective. Females were not as valued. They were not equals. Even in our society, we have so many times when someone's been involved in sexual abuse or sexual exploitation, We we blame the victim. We say, "Uh, she must have dressed like a certain way. She must have been at the wrong place. She must have done something wrong to deserve this. And God help us. God help us get through this mindset. Notice that Jesus, when he, in Matthew, he says... You have heard that it was said, do not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Jesus doesn't say, hey, if some woman dresses inappropriately and causes you to have adultery in your heart. He's putting it totally back on the male, the man, or the female, really. There's lust. There's enough lust to go all around. But the point is this. The point is this. We need to quit shaming the victim for what has occurred. I mean, think about it. In our day and age, in our society, and even in our mindset, how many times there's been a young woman who's been a victim of sexual assault who now lives a life of shame, not just for the sexual assault, but because somebody has put blame back on her for what was done to her as well. Do you think that may be the case with Bathsheba and the name recognition we have of her? Listen, I am not... Don't hear what I'm not saying, please. I am saying men... We, can't, we have to quit blaming women for our problems with lust. And I'm also saying at the same time, let's consider one another. Sisters, consider your brothers. Brothers, consider your sisters. Let's move forward. Here's, here's what I want to, I want to walk you through this passage real quick. And I want to show you that all the action in this passage is by David. So just walk through it with me. One evening, David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace. Notice when David's getting out of bed, by the way. It's in the evening. Uh, Some say late evening, but some say early. I don't know what time of the evening it was, but it was in the evening. This was not first thing in the morning David jumped up. He'd been in bed all day. I let the guys go out to war. I think I'll take a nap. I think I'll take another nap. Anyway, he gets up out of bed. He's on a, He's on his roof. He's the one who's going around. And, and it's from his roof he saw a beautiful woman bathing. He gets up. He goes around. the. He's the one who looks. He's the one who sees. Now, listen, <clears throat> David was at the wrong place at the wrong time. I do want to say this. Guys, there's one thing to, 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 to look. Sometimes you can't help but see. You know what I mean? Are you with me? Sometimes you can't help but see. It's another thing to really look and to keep looking. And David has gone to a place now where he says, who is that? He's gone from just looking and seeing that she's beautiful to inquiring about her to find out about who is this woman. Here's here's really between the looking and the inquiring is where David steps way over the line. This is where his path to disaster has really gone from one place to another. Now I can back all the way up saying he wasn't where he should have been. A lot of us have made bad choices to be where we shouldn't have been, have seen something we shouldn't have seen. But there is, at some point, this step from looking to inquiring that really takes us down an entirely different, an entirely different trail. And notice that a guy comes back and says to him, isn't this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam and the wife of Uriah the Hittite? Here's what I want you to see that David knows. This is somebody's daughter. This is somebody's wife. This is not just an object of sexual desire. This is a woman who is somebody's daughter. And by the way, not just somebody's daughter. This is somebody important's daughter. Eliam was one of David's mighty men. She is the granddaughter of David's closest advisor. If the, if the genealogies are all right, I can hardly say his name, Ahithophel, is his closest advisor. This is probably Bathsheba's grandfather. This is not just some woman. Uriah the Hittite was one of his soldiers, his mighty men. She is, she's not... She's not from outside the nation of Israel. She's from inside. She is one of the daughters of Israel. And I think this is where David, you can see the callousness of his heart. Somebody's wife, somebody's daughter, somebody I know, somebody I'm close to. At this point in David's life, it doesn't matter. Because the next action is unbelievable. David sent messengers to get her. He didn't send it to say, hey, you want to come over? He didn't like, you know, send a text. Hey, good looking. Want to come see? I mean, he sent guys to get her. What, what place does she have? When the king's guys come to your door and say the king wants to see you. We know about the power gap between parties now we've seen it we've we've talked about it we've seen it in our society David is the king and the spiritual leader of the nation she is a daughter of an advisor a wife of a soldier how can she say no to the king and at this point what does she even say no to other than he sent for her and brought her to him and it goes on And says he slept with her. He had sex with her. Some passages say he took her. Up until this point, we have nothing. Really. About Bathsheba, she says nothing. After he's done with her, she goes back home. Some passages even imply he sent her home. He sees he lusts. He wants. He takes. He ignores that she belongs to others. He has sex with her, and then he's yeah, I'm done. I, I, some of you may say, "You're reading a lot into that." I don't think I'm that far off. I don't think. I think this is brutally honest in the picture of David's sin. And I want you to see up until this point, the first thing you hear from Bathsheba is she says, I am pregnant. She sends word back to David. She doesn't even go back to tell him. It doesn't say she ever went back and slept with him. It just sent word back to him, I'm pregnant. If you wonder about the state of where David is, look what happens next. Next, David panics a little bit. Oh, wait a minute. I sent messengers. They know. I slept with her. There are other people who know. Now she's pregnant. Wait a minute. Uriah's off at battle. He's doing battle. When she gets pregnant, everybody's going to know this is my baby. So he brings Uriah back from the battlefield. He tries to encourage him. Hey, why don't you, good job, buddy. Why don't you go sleep with your wife while you're home? Why don't you have sex with your wife while you're here? And Uriah is, Uriah is an upstanding man. He said, I'm not going to, I can't do this. It it was tradition. I can't go have sex with my wife while my brothers in arms are out still fighting the battle. He doesn't even go into the house. He sleeps at the door. Then he goes back to battle. David hears about it. He's like, man, this is not going to work. This plan of mine is not going to play itself out. So David sends word to his general, Joab, who has issues of his own, by the way, if you read the Bible. There's so many layers to the story, you can't even get through it all. Joab has issues for his own. He says, hey, listen, here's what I want you to do. I want you to send Uriah to the front line battle. Then when the battle starts waging really big deal, pull back and let him get killed. That's what happens. They send Uriah out into the battle, pulls back, Uriah is killed. The bad news is some other guys are killed too. Not that Uriah is totally innocent, but he was the intended victim. But there's some other guys who get killed as well. Joab's now a little worried, oh, I got Uriah killed. But these other guys, he goes to this convoluted story. He sends word back to David, says, some got killed. There was a battle, but Uriah also, the Hittite, died. David says this to the messenger. Say this to Joab. Don't let this upset you. The sword devours one as well as another. David's heart is so calloused at this point, he's basically saying, eh, you know, war's hell. It's tough. People die. Don't worry about it. After he's set up, so not only is Uriah murdered, but really the other guys are murdered as well. They're just sacrificed pawns in David's game of trying to cover his tracks. Just so you know, I'm, I don't think I'm that far off on Bathsheba. It says when Uriah's wife, Bathsheba, heard that her husband was dead, she mourned for him. She mourned for him. By the way, the the way this is pictured is she offered lamentations before God. She lamented for him. This is not, you know, when I I, I have to be honest. When I've read this story in past times and I've been looking at it from different angles, I've kind of been a little dismissive here. Almost like, okay, she mourned for him, but she didn't really mourn for him. You know, there's that ritualistic mourning that she had to go through. There's that ritualistic mourning she had to do. And that's what she's doing. Because after the morning's over, David had her, again, brought to his house. And she became, became his wife and bore him a son. But really, it, the picture here is that she really lamented over Uriah. And again, at this point, she's had, from what we can see, no choice in this entire matter. She's been used and this chapter closes by saying but the thing david had done displeased the lord displeased the lord now just again in case you're wondering this perspective the chapter that comes next Nathan the prophet receives word from the Lord about what's occurred. And he goes to David, and he tells him this parable. That, uh, you remember the story. There's a rich man who had everything. There's a poor man, and he just had one little sheep. I mean, this sheep is painted as a special sheep. The sheep ate at his table and slept in his bed. and You know, it was a special sheep. One sheep that the poor man valued. The rich man in the story, and I'm shortening it, basically says, I want that guy's sheep. The poor man. So he takes the sheep, he kills the sheep, he devours the sheep. Now, the poor man is obviously Uriah. The rich man is obviously David, who had everything already. And the sheep is Bathsheba, who has been desired, devoured, killed. That's how she's pictured in this story. It, it's not like the sheep had any choice in any of this. And David is so ticked off. He's like, right, bring that rich man in here. You know that famous? You, you're you the man. You're the rich man. Here's what I want you to see. I'm asking you, There are so many different angles we could take with this story, but... I would say almost everybody in this room at some point has been harmed in some way by another. Many sexually. And the first thing that I would want you to see this morning is that God sees you. God sees you. I mean, at this point, don't you think that Bathsheba's thinking, you know, I it's basically raped? impregnated my husband's killed sure I'm living in the castle now but it's does anybody see me does anybody know what I've gone through and that's when Nathan shows up and says God sees David's sin and, and, and whether you want to talk about outing the victim or not the entire nation at this point knows What's happened when Nathan shows up? But God sees. According to the Department of Justice, one in four women and one out of six men are sexually abused in their lifetime. Some think the stats are much higher than that. In eight out of 10 rape cases, the victim knows the attacker. Beth, she even knew who was attacking her. She, she knew. Nearly six out of ten sexual assaults occur in the victim's home or in the home of a friend, relative, or neighbor. 13.3% of college women say they have been forced to have sex in a dating situation. And only 28% of victims ever report the sexual assault to the police. Which means that we have literally, literally millions of sexual assault victims in our nation right now. Millions. Millions, again, who have never reported it to the police. And I have no idea of the number who have never told anybody else about what occurred in their life. And m- Many of those people are in the church and they're thinking, does God care? Does God know? Did God see? Did God allow? Some tough theological and challenging questions that we all have to face. But I I believe that in this passage, even, it's saying, God does see you, God knows. I know the challenging question is if God knows, then why did he allow? And it's beyond the scope of my being able to answer in some trite way to say how God's sovereignty is at work in the, in the world and the, the, the nature of sin and why do bad hap- things happen to good people. It's complicated. But don't feel, don't say God is abandoned. Because God is still at work in your life. Even through the pain, the suffering, the abuse, the tragedies of life, God is at work. A son is born. She gives birth to a son. So here's what happens. Sorry, I'm kind of skipping a little bit of the story. The first son is born That child dies, uh, as per Nathan's prophecy. Now, Now, think about Bathsheba again. I hate to keep hammering this aspect of it home, but if indeed she's been sexually assaulted and abused, become pregnant, not out of her own desire, husband killed, now put in David's home, now the child, presumably her first child, presumably her only child at this point, is also taken from her. It's tragedy be upon tragedy for her. David goes and comforts her, it says, which basically means he has sex with her again. And my reading of it at this point is kind of like, don't seem like much comfort, but that's the way the Bible phrases this aspect. She gets pregnant and gives birth to another son, and this son is Solomon. We know where Solomon's headed. But look what it says. Nathan, the prophet, same Nathan, gives him a nickname, Jedediah. I like Solomon better personally than Jedediah, but Jedediah, which means loved by the Lord. Into this horrible situation, God gives birth to a son. Gives a son named Jedidiah, which means this child is loved by the Lord. God is at work in your life. You may not see it. You may not know it. It may it, it, it may be a slow working, but He is at work in your life. And if we really believe that, then we can stick into Romans eight twenty eight that and we know that in wait a minute, all things. Even these horrible things, even these terrible things, God works. It is indeed, I think, the glory of the gospel that God can take the ruin and ashes of these horrible situations and work in our lives. And work for good for us. He's at work. For the good of those who love him. Been called according to his purpose. For those God. This is where it really gets tough. God foreknew. He also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his son. That he might be the firstborn. Among many brothers. There are complicated theological issues here. That I don't want to minimize. Um, I don't even understand them myself. In faith I have to walk them out. But the truth is this. God sees you, and God is at work in your life. And God can take the ashes of your life and create beauty. God can take the ashes of your life. I'm skipping ahead, running out of time, but skipping ahead. So David's 50 to 55 when this whole thing occurs. He dies around 80, 75, 80, we don't know for sure, but it's years later at the end of his life. And now David is not the warrior. David's an old man. David can't stay warm. He's, he's got a human water bottle, so to speak. Uh, he's keeping him warm. Uh, you go read the end of Samuel and Kings. You'll, you'll see the story. But his sons are starting to battle over who's going to become king. And one of them, Absalom's younger brother, start, Absalom's dead by now. It's all All that stuff has happened. One of the sons is starting to really take charge and said, if I'm going to make my move, I got to make my move now to become king after dad dies. And dad's not going to stop me because he's too old. And he's not really proclaiming anything. and He's staying in bed all the time. So Bathsheba comes to David. And by that time, remember Bathsheba is the one who was summoned, taken, called, slept with. Now she's coming into David's presence at the urging, by the way, of Nathan the prophet. And one of the high priests and says, you better, if you don't step in right now, Solomon's not going to become king. And so she does exactly what she takes charge. She's seen as being, how did she get from there to here? I want to say this to you. Sometimes recovery from... Horrible things, especially sexual abuse. It takes a lifetime of putting one foot in front of the other, of receiving in faith what God has, doing what God's called you to do, finding joy in the the new, not tragedy in the old, and allow the slow healing process. God can heal like that in a minute, but many times it's a journey of healing. It's a journey of faith. And that's where we see Bathsheba at the end of her life. When she comes, David even says, call to Bathsheba, so she came into the king's presence and stood before him. And at this point, she's already asked that David fulfill his promise of making Solomon king. He calls her and says, I'll make that promise true. Solomon will be the king that follows me. Now, it's a long story to play itself out from there. And I feel like 45 minutes of talking about this subject is so inadequate because I know that the horror, the hurt, the shame, the devastation that this has in many people's hearts and lives. But if I could could just give you a spark of hope this morning, it would be this. The gospel is this good that it can take the ashes of a horrible situation and turn it into something glorious. To go from where Bathsheba was to her son becoming the next king to becoming really the queen mother, the lead wife in David's household is an incredible journey. And it didn't happen just overnight and it didn't happen because David was such a great guy. It, did, it happened because God is a great God. And I think God sees you wherever you are today. Whatever abuse you've been through, whatever devastating, it may be sexual abuse, it may not. It may be other kind of abuse. It may be even just abandonment or destroyed relationships or betrayal. It can take many forms, but I want you to know today that God sees you. God is at work. And God can take the ashes of things done to you and turn them into something incredible. Lord, we pray this morning for that to be the case in our hearts and our lives. Lord, I I pray that Spirit of God, you'd move through this place. Touching, healing, setting free. Lord, I, I believe in the fact that your blood forgives. So Lord, I pray that Forgiveness would be manifest in this place. I pray that we would be able to forgive ourselves. We'd be able to forgive others. We'd be able to forgive circumstances and situations. We would would see that God, through Jesus, everything has been paid. Lord, we also want to say this morning, our strength to overcome is indeed weak but you are our all in all. And so I pray that today, Lord, our hearts and our minds would be turned toward you. Lord, I pray for those. I want to pray specifically for those today who are here, who are the victims of sexual abuse. And I pray, God, that shame would be lifted up off of them. Blame would be dismissed. That instead, Lord, they would see that they are seen by you, that they are loved by you, that you're at work in their lives, and God, you care. And that, God, you can take the ashes of that horrid situation, of the thing that was done to them, and and you can still use our lives for beauty and glory. That we are not discarded, we are not abandoned. We are a people of hope. Lord, I pray that for anyone, who's here today, who has been abused in any way, that, God, you would touch them and heal them and set them free. God, I feel, I I, I confess my own inadequacy in even praying or preaching this word, but, God, you're touching people's hearts, and it's going beyond me, and I pray that, God, it would occur that people would be set on the journey of health and healing and wholeness. If not totally today, Lord, then by... by by putting trust in you, by putting faith in you, by receiving your power and presence in their life and simply putting one foot in front of the other and going day by day in their journey of faith that, God, you would make us whole. God, we celebrate you today. We say thank you, Lord Jesus, that you've paid the price for not only our sin, but the sin that was done to us. May we just receive in faith healing today. Thank you. Stand up with me if you would. And let's just confess this to the Lord. I pray that the Spirit of God would move through this place. Just healing hearts and healing lives.